Our text this morning is Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, there we read the Word of God as follows. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. After the sermon, we'll sing in response Psalm 139, stanzas 1, 2, 10, and 13. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we come together on Sundays, we're busy with the Word of God. We sing it, read it, study it, profess it, and hear it proclaimed. As Reformed people, we've learned to say all the right things about the Bible. The human authors were inspired by the Spirit of God. The Bible is the norm for our life. It testifies of Jesus, our Savior. It is a light on our path. And of course, that's all true. But those sayings can easily turn into cliches. We become so used to the Bible that we don't reflect on what it really is and what it does. And maybe there are even times where we wish we had something more, something extra, something special. Imagine if God would send an angel from heaven to speak to us right here and now. Wouldn't that be convincing and edifying and reassuring for our life of faith? The author of Hebrews, whoever he was, opens his letter by telling us that in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He's saying, in Christ, we have the fullness and finality of God's word. And how does he prove that? He shows that Christ is the greatest. He is over and above all persons, heavenly beings, institutions, rituals, and previous means of revelation. That's the theme of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ. And that's demonstrated in so many ways. He's superior to angels, to Moses, Joshua, Aaron, Abraham, Melchizedek, the Old Covenant, the Tabernacle, the High Priest, the treasures of this world, Mount Sinai, and the city we have here on earth. Perhaps we can look at it this way. Christ paid for our sins once for all. He came to this earth, took on our flesh, lived among us, died on the cross, and cried out in His dying moments, it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. Full atonement has been made. Well, the same with Revelation. 
with God's Word. In Christ, God has definitively made himself known. We have everything in these 66 books. There's nothing more to add. Does that mean God no longer speaks to us? Not at all. He communicates to us individually and communally and directly. He speaks through His Son by the revelation of the Son's redeeming work that we find first prophesied and prefigured in the Old Testament, then recorded in the Gospels, and finally unpacked by the Spirit through the apostles in the rest of the New Testament. So God has given us everything we need in the Bible. We accept that. But how does His Word work? Thankfully, God tells us in more than one place, Scripture talks directly about itself. And we have one such example in our text for this morning, which I proclaim to you under this theme, while striving to enter God's rest, let us reckon with the majesty of God's Word. And we'll see that majesty, first of all, in the qualities of His Word, and secondly, in the effect of His Word. Verse 12 begins with the little word for. And that obligates us to look at what precedes because with that word, the author's coming to a conclusion. He's drawing up the balance. If you glance at chapters 3 and 4, you see that they have a strong tone of warning. <clears throat> Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Chapter 4, verse 1, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach God's rest. He's urging them with all earnestness to enter the rest that God has promised His people. And that entrance happens through faith in the promise, in the Word of God. Hence the, the warning, the exhortation to believe which receives a special color in that the writer compares the congregation of Jewish Christians with the old Israel in the wilderness. They had received the same promise, but what had they done with it? They rejected it in unbelief. Chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And again in chapter 4, verse 2, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And that leads to the warning in verse 11 that no one in the New Testament congregation fall by the same sort of disobedience by unbelief. Well, what's the rest that he's talking about. He explained that in the verses we read together. He goes back to creation. God rested on the seventh day because his work of creating was done. We are to imitate that pattern as God stipulated in the fourth commandment. 
The Sabbath, however, also points forward to the rest that Christ would achieve. You and I live in the fulfillment of His work. We enter a spiritual rest, a deep rest of our souls in confessing that Christ's work of redemption was finished when He died on the cross and rose from the grave. True, we await His second coming, at which time God's rest will be enjoyed in perfection forever. But until that day, we're called to rest in Christ's salvation and resist the temptation to fall back into any kind of works righteousness. Now, how is that done? By believing the Word. By hearing it, by trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ and embracing it with all our heart and soul and mind. Don't misunderstand what the Holy Spirit is saying in verse 2. Let's just go back to that verse for a moment. God's word, God's message to Israel didn't benefit them because they didn't receive it in faith. It sounds as if the Word of God can't have any effect in our life unless we believe it. Does our faith make God's Word beneficial? You know that cannot be the case. True, God's Word and faith are inseparably bound together, but faith isn't something we generate. It's worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Think of Lord's Day 25. The author isn't talking about faith as our contribution towards salvation. He's highlighting our responsibility. Be careful to hear and believe. He wants them and us to see the seriousness of contact with the Word. Look closely at the wording he uses. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest that no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. He wants us to avoid what happened to Israel when through unbelief the bodies of those who sinned fell in the wilderness. Israel did not respond in the right way. They were not free to pick and choose from God's Word whatever struck their fancy, nor simply to treasure it as a divine oracle. Rather, it came to them as God's authoritative Word for their lives. They were to hear, believe, and obey. And any other response invited God's Word to become His sword of judgment. This is what the writer fears may happen to members of the new Israel of God. And so with verses 12 and 13, he sets before us the majesty of God's Word, a majesty so great that it makes you small and still, and it causes you to fall in humility at the feet of Him who spoke it. If you were thinking too highly of your faith, trusting in its worthiness, our text warns us, be careful to reckon 
with the majesty of God's Word. And God's Word is not to be separated from God. If you look carefully, you'll notice that verse 12 is about the Word of God. And verse 13, which is of one piece with verse 12, is about God. No creature is hidden from His sight. And a little further on, before the eyes of Him, the person of the Lord God is meant there. Without interruption, our text flows from the Word to God Himself, which shows you that in the Bible, we have to do with God. It's always His Word. He is always present in it. And He consistently sustains it by His almighty power, not just when He first spoke it or had it recorded, but also today when you and I read it and hear it. It's not surprising then that the first thing said here about the Word of God is that it is living. How can it not be when the God who gave it and the God whom it reveals is the living God, the God of life? In the original text, the word living stands at the beginning of the sentence and receives all the emphasis. The word is constantly alive, never diminishes in strength. It does not gradually lose its meaning or its luster. We all know that words can do things. On a good day, just two words from a father can turn the chaos of his teenager's bedroom into order. But not only can words command, they can excite, they can make a person cry or laugh, pronounce two people to be husband and wife. They can even start a war. Words can accomplish a tremendous amount. Well, how much more God's Word? It's something that will not remain neutral in your contact with it. It will act. It will accomplish what God wants and will have an effect whether we like it or not. It will result either in blessing or judgment for us, but either way it has an effect. And that reminds you of what God revealed through Isaiah, doesn't it? For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The writer of Hebrews illustrated that with God's word of oath. As I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Well, that word had a definite effect and it was fulfilled. A whole generation of Israelites did not enter the promised land. They died in the desert. And don't swap out the word living for lively. It's true that the Bible is a lively account. It tells God's story in a gripping and suspenseful, a stirring and exciting way. 
But living is the Word of God means that it's not just a sound or a thing or a story. It has to do with a person. God Himself is speaking to you. That's why John Calvin could write, we owe to the Scriptures the same reverence as we owe to God, since it has its only source in Him. Closely connected with that is the next quality. The Word of God is active. The Greek word is one from which we get our word energy. Powerful, dynamic, full of energy. It does things no human being can possibly do. It touches where nothing else can touch. It's the most powerful weapon in the universe. News articles and television may inform us. An excellent, well-written novel may motivate us. Poetry may captivate us. But only the living, active Word of God can change us. As the Apostle Peter wrote, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, notice that word, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers, the flower falls. But the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word, says Peter, is the good news which was preached to you. The essential character of the Word of God is its inexhaustible vitality, its dynamic efficacy. Now, efficacy is not a word that we use or hear that often, but simply it means the ability to produce a desired or intended result. God's Word never returns to Him void. It never fails to accomplish its eternal purpose. What a responsibility we have then to trust and obey or we become like the people of Israel whose bodies fell in the wilderness. Scripture, brothers and sisters, doesn't just say things. It does things. It convicts. It encourages. It comforts. It brings wisdom. It gives life. Isn't that what our Savior taught? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Sometimes hard to believe or even comprehend that God has spoken to us in such plain words and that these plain words have the power to make us alive. We who by nature are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Word of God doesn't merely teach you or show you the path of salvation. It actually imparts that salvation by working faith in Christ, by renewing your heart, by enlightening your eyes, by sanctifying you. All, of course, under the marvelous operation of the Spirit of God. Then we get the third quality 
of God's word. It's sharp. By saying the word of God is sharp, the author doesn't want us to think of some kind of unpleasant sharpness, a sword that that bludgeons and crushes and destroys everything. No, sharp here refers to making a very clean cut. The Word of God is an instrument of extreme precision. Paul, as you know, also describes the Word as a sword. And cataloging the armor of God with which we need to be fitted, he calls on us to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We're told that the sword of God's Word is two-edged. We read that about Christ as well. In the vision John received on Patmos, he sees the exalted Savior, the firstborn from the dead, in the middle of the golden lampstands, and from his mouth issued a two-edged sword. That characteristic, two-edged, is referring to the fact that No one can escape Christ and His Word. The Word of God doesn't have a blunt backside behind which you can safely crawl. No, the backside is just as sharp as the front side. No one can escape its piercing power. And consider how deep it cuts. With that, we touch on the second point, the effect of God's Word. God's Word, whether read or proclaimed, pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. The first phrase, soul and spirit, describes the spiritual side of man. The second one, joints and marrow, the physical. God created us body and soul. And so the whole man comes under God's Word. It cuts so deep that where human understanding fails, the Word of God still pierces. For who can clearly say what the difference is between soul and spirit? They can hardly be distinguished from each other, never mind separated. We finite human beings are coming up against the limits that the Creator has set Himself for us. The point is where we are not able to penetrate, God's Word can and does. It passes through to our innermost being. and Nothing remains untouched by it. In fact, it's so sharp that it's able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What no surgeon's scalpel can cut open, no electronic detector can expose, Holy Scripture is able to do. The word translated discerns literally means judges. Our English words critical and critic come from it. God's Word divides and separates. It sifts out and analyzes. It scrutinizes the evidence and it passes judgment on it. Humanly speaking, nothing is more hidden and private and inaccessible than the thoughts and intentions of my heart. And by heart here is not meant the muscle 
with four chambers and an aorta that pumps blood throughout the body. Rather, as it does so often in the Bible, it designates the center and the core of our being, the deep fount of our life in all its aspects, moral, spiritual, intellectual, and emotional. It's here that the Word of God does its work. And the emphasis is on the heart because that's where the wilderness generation had begun to go wrong. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Chapter 3, verse 8. They always go astray in their heart. 3, verse 10. And so the Jewish Christian readers and we today must be on the alert lest apostasy begin here in our heart. He exhorts us, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So let God's Word sift out the first traces of any such unbelief and hardening and deal with them before it's too late. Allow the Bible to do its work in your life, ripping away that image you may have built up for yourself or that mask you wear before other people, not the COVID one. Turn to the Word and let yourself be molded by it. Let it dwell in your heart. And don't box in the Word expecting certain passages to trigger off certain spiritual experiences. Instead, just keep reading it. Even when you don't understand every word and phrase. Keep reading it regularly, even when you don't have a particular response to it. You'll be stocking up your memory with Scripture, and gradually, and now and again, you'll find the Spirit taking some of those passages to shake you from apathy, to lay bare your self-delusion, to bring you to your knees in confession, to instill humility, to rouse you to serve others, to let it judge and dissect you. There's also a communal aspect here. If the Word is living and active for you, don't hoard it up. Because of the tendency of our hearts to unbelief, the writer to the Hebrews saw the need for the congregation to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, he says in 3 verse 13. Because sin is so deceitful, we all, young and old, Office bearers and members need to exhort one another with the Word. No one can sit back in his spiritual, his scriptural bubble. The Lord may want you to speak the Word to a brother or sister that will help them avoid eventually having to face God's Word in its lethal capacity as the sword of judgment. Don't say it's none of my business. When you see someone 
beginning to slide. When you see unbelief or disobedience, it is your business because it can affect the whole congregation. It's this same letter that warns us against a root of bitterness springing up in one's heart and many becoming defiled by it. 12 verse 15. The Word lays us open before God. The preaching of His gospel unmasks us. Something the preacher isn't able to see or observe taking place in his listeners. He's but the minister of the Word. Listening to God's Word has one of two effects. It either leads us to God or away from God. It's always effective. If it doesn't raise people up, it strikes them down. It softens our heart or hardens it. Think of Pharaoh. The motives and arguments buried deep in our heart are awakened by the Word of God and completely exposed and answerable to the Lord of the Word. That's the majesty of God's Word. It is God Himself in it. Nobody can hide from Him. And that's the powerful conclusion of our text, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. Have you ever had it that you're sitting under the preaching and you think, how does He know? He's talking to me this morning. When you're referring to the minister, but he can't read your heart. He doesn't know what you said or thought in the week gone by. No, it's God who knows you. Your heart is like an open book to him. There is no bosom sin, no dark depth, no unexpressed thought, no secret feeling that's not completely known by God. All are naked and exposed to God's eyes. That second term, exposed, <clears throat> literally means pinned by the neck. We get our word trachea from it. It's connected either with bending back the neck of a sacrificial animal for that fatal stroke of the knife, or with the grip of the victorious wrestler as he pins his opponent by the throat, signaling his defeat. In either case, we see man's plight when face to face with his Creator. All cover-ups will be stripped away, and his pretensions will not help him the least as he stands before God in utter powerlessness. Writer's point, however, is that before events ever reach such a stage in your life, let the Word do its work. Its work of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The God 
whose word is able to penetrate the hard shell of my heart. To him we must give account. The closing words of our text. Actually, in the original, it literally says, to him from us a word. The writer is saying that to the God of the word, you and I must give a word, an answer. The word of God today hauls us out of every one of our hiding places, pierces through every excuse we drum up, exposes all our fallacies and says, this is for you. And no, the the word doesn't strong arm us into giving a believing answer. Faith cannot be coerced. What good, what value would there be in a forced faith? Nevertheless, over against the word of God, we have the sad possibility of saying no. Don't lightly dismiss this as something you can't understand. When we say no to God and to His Word, that's our answer, our word. Sure, to another person, we can give a lengthy rationale, explain our decision. We can be like the governor Felix to whom Paul brought the Word of God. He responded by saying, go away for the time being. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. But within our heart, we can't do that. Our hidden thoughts and intentions and motives are seen by God just as easily as you see me up here. When Samuel went to anoint one of Jesse's boys to be king, he was wowed by the size and the height of Eliab. But God reminded him, He said, Samuel, the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In a sinful world, God's Word, in whatever way it comes to you, whether you interact with it by yourself or whether it's brought to you by someone else, can be painful. Yet the sword of God's Word uncovers our sin in order to point us to the one who bore God's sword of judgment against sin, to the one whose sprinkled blood speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel, and who has been exalted to heaven as our merciful high priest. When you experience the Bible working in your life in that way, then you know genuinely and from the heart what the writer is talking about in chapter 6, verse 5, when he speaks of tasting the goodness of the Word of God. The majesty of the Word in our text is its inescapability. We can't dodge it, sidestep it, get around it. And that's okay. We don't have to flee from it because the Word of God is a word of salvation. God's heart is revealed in it. Sending His own Son to suffer and die for for wretched sinners like us. The majesty of God's Word, it's, it's not meant to scare you. 
brothers and sisters, for us who believe, God's majesty fills us with joy and adoration, with humility and awe, and it enables us to sing with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Amen.